This is mosaic. Mosaic. This is mosaic. Mosaic. One of the most extensive public relations campaigns that I can remember from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was centered around one phrase. I'm a Mormon. The campaign was the church's answer to increased curiosity about the faith during a time that is sometimes referred to as the Mormon moment, sparked by a couple of presidential campaigns from Mitt Romney, as well as a certain pre-Hamilton hit Broadway musical. The I'm a Mormon advertising effort lived on social media and on Temple Square in Salt Lake, but it was also plastered on billboards and giant TV screens from New York City to London. As part of the effort, the church produced a ton of short, sleek videos that focused on Mormons themselves. The videos paint a picture of a church filled with diversity and individuality. I'm a paramedic firefighter. I'm a loud Aussie country girl. I'm a father, a husband. And an Olympic silver medalist. And they all had the same ending. And I'm a Mormon. And I am a Mormon. And I'm a Mormon. Funny story, Mormons weren't actually the first ones to try out this approach to missionary marketing. Before there was I'm a Mormon, there was this. My name is Aaron, I'm a skateboarder, and I'm also a Scientologist. My name is Vanessa, I'm a marketing consultant, and I'm a Scientologist. Really, a campaign like this makes a lot of strategic sense. Mormon history is filled with a wrestle over its public image. Are Mormons mainstream or isolationists? Americans or citizens of Deseret? Or is Zion supposed to be built all around the world? There's even a question of whether Mormons are Mormon. Others may try to use the word Mormon more broadly to include and refer to those who have left the church and form various splinter groups. Such use only leads to confusion. The truth is defining and claiming an identity, a Mormon identity or any identity, can be a risky, confusing, contradictory enterprise. On today's episode of Mosaic, we have three stories that dive into that murky territory. I'm Derek Clements. The first story on today's show takes this broad question of Mormon identity and places it deep within one confused young Mormon's mind. That confused young Mormon? Me. Here's the story. I arrived in New York City on my birthday in 2013. Transfer is available to I was going to be an intern at Radiolab, a fact that filled me with many emotions. On the most basic level, it was the thrill of having my very first job. It actually wasn't my very first job. It was just my first job that had nothing to do with being a Mormon. I was coming from Utah, where I was a student at BYU. I had worked for several years as a teacher at the Missionary Training Center, where I instructed missionaries and assisted in the administration of three large-scale seminars for new mission presidents. I had been a missionary myself, which amounts essentially to an internship with the LDS Church. Missionaries are young, inexperienced, unpaid, hardworking, and, like interns, they're essential to the institution, but generally get more out of the experience than they give. 
I was used to doing work that flowed directly out of my Mormon experience. Even my creative work, like the live storytelling stage show that I ran in Utah, always made me happiest when I found ways to explore some of the conflicts inherent in Mormon practice and belief. I was proud of all that work experience, but none of it felt like work. It all existed through the lens of Mormonism, so it just felt like home. You don't include on your resume that you mowed the lawn and vacuumed the floor every Saturday for 17 years. On my 26th birthday, I was starting a job outside of the Mormon context and far away from home. Not knowing exactly how to make sense of my new surroundings, my first instinct was not to quietly take it in and observe, but to inject my own sense of familiarity on my new place, to impose a makeshift Mormon context on the godless New York City. One very busy afternoon, Jad Abumurad, the co-host of Radio Lab, was mountaineering his way through lots of editing before a deadline, and he asked me to get him a coffee. I want to point out that I was not asked to do that because I was an intern. In fact, the only other time Jad asked me anything about getting coffee was when he was offering to get some for me, which he had done a few days earlier. On this afternoon, I just happened to be less busy than anyone else on staff at a moment when Jad wanted a boost. He gave me some cash, and I was on my way. While waiting for the elevator, I repeated over and over again in my mind what Jad had said about the kind of coffee he wanted. I took out my phone and made a note of his exact words. If they ask you if you want a single or a double, go ahead and get a double. I wondered if I should have just mentioned that that would be my first experience ordering a coffee. While I assumed it was as simple as ordering anything else, I also knew that there were lots of kinds of coffee. Lattes, cappuccino, iced and I had no experience telling them apart. If I had been upfront about my virginal coffee ordering state, maybe he would have given me some special password that would save me embarrassment. But I didn't want Jad thinking that he was asking me to do something that was against my morals, because he wasn't. Coffee isn't offensive to be around to Mormons, and I didn't want to give the impression that he was asking me to run down to the corner and pick up some heroin. So I ran through my script several times in the elevator. And then, hiding my nervousness, I marched into the Starbucks around the corner from WNYC in Lower Manhattan and feigned expertise as I placed the order. To my relief, I was asked the one question I was prepared to answer, and I replied, double please. Such confidence filled my whole countenance that I'm sure the barista was thinking, what, is this guy getting like his millionth coffee? He placed that order like a real pro. Then, as I waited, I slyly pulled out my phone and went ahead and did a quick Google image search just to make sure I knew what to expect. But I wasn't quite sure what search items to put in. And before I could find anything, my name was called. I panicked briefly, but handled it. Here you go, man. I went for the cup, and when I saw it, my face dropped. It was the smallest cup I had ever seen outside of a sacrament meeting. Could this possibly be right? Inside the cup were two dinky little squirts of black liquid. I knew it would shatter the illusion I had built for myself, but better here than back with Jad. So I asked, um, is this a double? The barista's eyes narrowed in confusion, and he replied that it was. At that point, 
What was I to do but thank him, hope for the best, and walk back to the building and up the elevator? I wondered if this was my opportunity to announce the milestone it had been. I mentally tried on sentences like, I hope this is what you wanted, and, well, what do you know, I ordered my first coffee. But I didn't find any phrasing that fit just right, so I threw on my old confidence rags and handed Jad the cup. Much to my relief, he seemed to be expecting a cup exactly the size of the one I gave him. He thanked me and took a sip. Throughout this experience, I felt the weight of what I looked like as a Mormon. If I had just come out and said I didn't know how to order coffee, what would they think? What would that say to an objective observer about what I thought about gay people, for example? I was not embarrassed to be Mormon. In fact, I wanted to embrace it about myself. I wanted to prove to my non-Mormon colleagues that one could be Mormon and also a liberal, independent, open-minded person. Actually, for the past several years, I've been trying to prove the same thing to fellow Mormons, too. I look Mormon. I'm enthusiastic, friendly, hopeful. As much as I acknowledge the limitations of stereotypes, many of us are that way, or at least act that way. Mormons can also be oppressive, dogmatic, arrogant, and it was important to me that people at Radiolab knew I knew that. Even though spiritual paradigms did not seem like the most relevant or possibly appropriate topic to establish in a workplace, I knew that they knew I was coming from Utah. I wanted them to see me as I saw myself. Of course, the obvious thing to do is just be yourself. But I was racing to construct a complex Mormon identity for myself before I would become imprinted forever with the stamp of a brand of Mormonism for which I was not an editor. In retrospect, I wasn't giving my coworkers enough credit, nor was I giving Mormonism or my own personhood much credit either. I'm not only Mormon from a cultural standpoint. I hate when people say they're culturally Mormon, but that's it. That's unfair of me to hate that. I should respect everybody's place. But I am eager to carve a place for myself in my faith that is not only cultural. Whatever significant asterisks there may be on the label, I consider myself a believer. The idea of revelation is one of the fractals of my faith. No matter how many times I have broken apart my beliefs, my concept of revelation has kept its basic shape in every iteration. There's a distinct feeling I get that accompanies a spiritual prompting. And over the years, I've gotten into the habit of trusting it to great effect. I feel this most obviously in my creative work. There were times when I would receive distinct ideas, for example, about how to run my storytelling show in Utah. Almost every single show, I noticed an idea enter my head to change something. Who I should invite up from the audience, or how I should mix up the order of performers. And after dozens of experiences like this, I stopped being shocked when that small tweak completely changed the show for the better. It was only while I was walking home after the show that I would realize, wow, that one person's story really changed the tone of the evening. I'm so glad I put her on when I did. And look, I'm willing to call this something non-religious, creative intuition. I'm even willing to say that it ultimately comes from my own brain. But the mechanism is exactly the same as I learned at church. Listen, discern, 
respond. So I'm happy to use that same language to describe it. God talks to me, sometimes in what feels like complete sentences. I don't know how else to say it. In my efforts to construct a complex Mormon identity for myself to convey to the Radiolab staff, I found more success in some approaches than others. One day, while I was checking an episode for errors and swear words, a task I was particularly well-suited for, being the gifted noticer of swear words that I was, I caught that Jad had slipped in a choral version of an exclusively LDS hymn into the episode. Maybe they did, and maybe there are angels on top of this control console here. (laughs) Yep, definitely ours. And I took it as the perfect icebreaker to present my complex religious identity to my coworkers. I sent my supervisor an enthusiastic email telling her what I had discovered, but using language that might hint at some religious complexity. Enthusiasm flavored with a bit of iconoclasm. But when I turned around to give her an open-mouthed smile of excitement, the look on her face surprised me. She smiled, but she seemed to not know how to respond to my in-your-face zealousness. I may have embarrassed her, which was not at all on my radar then, but makes sense when I realized that religious beliefs are not always worn on sleeves in workplaces. I knew I had to try harder if I was going to communicate my religious paradigm with clarity and in an appealing way. Then I found the perfect entryway. My sincere love for the Book of Mormon musical. I love the show, even though I have some ambivalent feelings about it. To me, it's a play that loves Mormons as much as it mocks us. And I find what it says about religious invention to be worth considering. Joseph Smith went up on that hill and dug where he was told. And deep in the ground, Joseph found shining plates of gold. What are these golden plates? Who buried them here and why? Then appeared an angel. His name was Moroni. I am Moroni. The all-American. The show has sharp insights, and it delivers its perspective with blasphemous clarity. Yes, bringing up the Book of Mormon musical would give me serious cred. Plus, I could mention I had a girlfriend who currently was away as a missionary herself, and that I was in fact planning to see the play with her parents. Now that is a package of complexity waiting to be chewed on around the water cooler. Now I just needed to calculate how I would bring it up in the best manner possible and with the most audience. My moment came one night when my coworkers and I were late at the office working on the episode of the show to be released that week. It also happened to be the week that I would be seeing the play. As we took a break to eat dinner together, I could feel the timing telling me now so I dropped my line. I'm going to see the Book of Mormon on Thursday, I said. I'm so excited, it's like my life story. Everyone perked up. Robert Krolwich, co-host of the show, gave the best reaction of all. He hadn't expected to like it, because he said, I'm kind of religious and whatever, but he had a friend who had insisted it was a must-see. Now, everyone nearby was definitely interested. I slipped in a few more salient details. I'm a big fan of the show, I said. 
I mean, I'm totally Mormon, and my girlfriend right now is a missionary too. Pause to let that one sink in. Now we were all ready for the big finish. I said, yeah, I'm actually going to see the show with her parents, and I'm going to spend the weekend hanging out with them too, just us. This detail was the humorous bow that tied it all together. Someone pointed out, saying you're seeing the Book of Mormon musical is like the best thing ever, and spending a weekend with your girlfriend's parents without your girlfriend is like the worst thing ever. Ah, the sweet sounds of calculated laughter. I was not wrong that this topic would provide the right setting to construct my most accurate and complete picture of my identity for my coworkers. One of the producers asked, what do Mormons think about the musical? And I, like the main character in a cheesy Mormon missionary video, took on a posture of, oh, how funny you ask. Here is my totally natural and impromptu series of discussion points about the deepest, most important things to my soul. Well, I let the hesitation in my voice handle some of the heavy lifting. A lot of us like it a lot. The official response from the church was something like, the musical might entertain you for a night, but the book will change your life. I think the musical is brilliant and has some really insightful observations about religions and about the naivete of young missionaries, but there are a lot of Mormons that are probably offended too. Most of the people I know back in Utah probably would not like it. There were nods of understanding and smiles. I felt triumphant. As the conversation and the dinner came to a close, I returned to my work completely pleased that I had done it. I had painted the most accurate and honest version of my religiosity that I possibly could. You know, I've got to thank you for letting me talk your hair off. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Really. I do feel differently than I did a couple of hours ago. Now, the only confusion about my religious identity was the one going on inside myself, which is where that type of confusion belongs. Why exactly I wanted my coworkers to understand my Mormonism remained a mystery to me. But I puzzled through it a lot. And one night, I found myself praying about it in my room in Brooklyn. Okay, Heavenly Father, I silently said. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with these people. I keep wanting them to understand that I'm Mormon. Am I supposed to convert them? I assume that most of them don't believe in God. And frankly, neither do I, at least in the way that I used to, and yet here I am talking to you. So you can see why I'm confused and why I probably am not right to be preaching anything anyway. As I knelt there by my bed, a string of words seemed to enter my mind, which came either from deep within myself or deep within the universe. But it felt like someone who cared about me was speaking to my heart. It said, learn from these people. They are really, really smart. And if you listen, you will not only learn about radio, you can learn from them about me. Whether they themselves believe or not, they can teach you about me. One of my primary responsibilities at Radiolab was to log tape, to listen to interviews in their full-length, unedited versions and take notes along the way. Then the producers could more easily break down those interviews into smaller segments and eventually into fully edited stories. One day, Andy, who was the newest producer on staff, about my age, with a full beard, came over to my desk and gave me a flash drive with a few hours of tape he had recorded on a field trip out in the country somewhere. I liked Andy, 
And I felt a connection with him because he also grew up with a strong religious background. And after an editorial meeting one week, I made a point to ask him some question I had about religion. Andy, I said, I have a theological question for you. Jad, who was nearby and could hear me, said, Wow, did you see the erection he just got when you told him that? The phrase impressed me, both in the way a child admires the maturity of an older kid when he speaks authoritatively about sex, and in the way one admires the precision of a poet to capture meaning with perfectly chosen words. In this case, the meaning was, Andy gets more excited than the rest of us to talk about religion. I asked Andy my question, which was about how various religions talk about the fallibility of the Bible. He eagerly went into the topic, and then he surprised me. He said, I've thought so much about how to talk about this stuff on the radio, but it's just too hard. Religion? I asked. Yeah, it's so significant because so many people believe in a religion, but it's so difficult to tell a story about one person's religious beliefs in a way that doesn't make them sound weird to non-believers. I had not thought about this before, and I agreed. I'm going to hit record again. A few days later, I started logging Andy's tape. Yeah. The interview was with a man whose daughter had been murdered, but the man had forgiven the murderer. I heard a hello. In the recording, I could hear lots of sounds of the peaceful, wide-open spaces of the country. As Andy, another producer, and the man walked from his house to the site of his daughter's grave. I gotta tell you, these, these are my new favorite trees. What are the name of them again? Dawn Redwood. You know, it's hard to imagine, but that tree, look at the size of the darn thing, and I planted that. Yeah, it seems impossible. It's thing, and it wasn't, it wasn't when we first moved here by long shot. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about my own death that long ago, at least not very seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas now you are every day. <laughs> now Crickets, <laughs> rustling leaves, yeah, and gentle people years. speaking. Yeah, the bench is nice. It was all very different from the sounds of New York City, which merit their own reverence, of course. I could hear Andy, who grew up in a small place like that, wondering aloud whether living in the city was right for him at all. I've been living in New York City for a little over a year, and I like it. Yeah. I like it more than I dislike it, for sure. But when I come to a place like this, I just think, like, yeah, it's just better. It's just better to be around the live things. Yeah. And I know that there's bugs. As I was filling out the log, the man and Andy had an exchange that made me pause. Well, thanks for taking us here. Yeah. You're welcome. It does seem, it does seem like a holy place. Yeah. It is to me. I, I, I'm just so, so glad that we have a peaceful, beautiful spot where she can rest. I just imagine the roots of the trees cradling her. That's a beautiful thought. Yeah. And that she's feeding them. That's <laughs> yeah. a, 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 something so... I, I like the Muslim way of just wrapping a person in a shroud and placing them in the earth without all the concrete caskets and all the other stuff to embalming and all the things to try to it's like you're trying to put off death and you can't <laughs> no way in the world no way in the world and so it's better to just you know, accept it 
Yeah, I have a I have a tattoo on my arm right here. It's kind of silly, but it you know it's silly to get a tattoo in the first place. But I also think it's kind of a natural instinct that a lot of human beings have, and yep. you should just go for it. But what does it do? What is it's a no. It's 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 like it goes on my chest. It's kind of hard to show off, okay. but it uh, it's a vine. It's a bunch of vines that come together, and it's after this artist Andy Goldsworthy and his his in his artwork, and like he, he has this theory about how. Um, everything is cyclical like you know it, it, to the point of, like my friend had passed away right, right around when I got it and I thought like okay he has died and then the grass around it feeds off of him and yeah. the bird eats the grass and like his atoms don't die his atoms are eternal yeah. and the potential energy yeah. goes from one state to another state so like that 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 soil becomes a plant. The plant gives energy to the bird, and like little bits of him spread yeah. out in the atoms, over. the millions of atoms all over, you know, billions and trillions of atoms all over every little speck of grass, and yeah. so like little bits of the physical object of what she was is now all around us. And it also, for me, it works well with the other side too, because like that that not physical bit, yeah. the part that is story, like it also gets totally spread out. Yeah. But like I like he was my friend who passed, and I. I carry a bit, I'm sure, yeah. in my personality, my confidence, or in my things that comfort me. Like, there's a little bit of his invisible atoms that kind of live on, and I, I believe in that. That's what I believe in, eternal life. Eternal life. Triggered by those last two words, I thought about the thing God had told me to look for, and I rewound the tape. I believe in that. That's what I believe in, eternal life. Like, that's, yeah. that's the eternal life that we're all in. And when you compare that to death, it's like, seems so much bigger. You know, like, oh, death you may get today, you know. <laughs> like, you lose in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Silence, crickets, leaves, mm. and the familiar feeling all through my body that I was listening to truth. A week later, I approached Andy. So, that was pretty amazing what you said about eternal life, I said. He said thanks, and then he started telling me about his tattoo. He said he had lost the faith he had growing up. But that idea of eternal life through relationships with those that survive became a really important idea to him. He told me that he realized that after having lost some of his earlier beliefs, permanently painting this idea on his body was a kind of way of committing, like saying, I'm going to stick with this one. I feel a lot in common with Andy. I, too, have some post-Orthodox beliefs that I still drape in the language of my religious upbringing and paradigm. I don't take exception with any of the content of his idea about eternal life, but where he and I differ is that I could not bring myself to get a tattoo about it. That's not a criticism. I admire his commitment. But my ontological perspective is too loose to ever be sure enough to put ink into my skin. I much prefer to engage in the sometimes violent dance between my traditional Mormon view and things like Andy's idea, which is now in my head too. My faith thrives on flexibility. And Mormonism, with its open canon and possibility for continuing revelation, seems to fit that perspective just fine. As long as I always allow my beliefs to get stung by the realities and contradictions of new evidence, I rest assured that I will not go too far astray. If I were to get a tattoo of my beliefs, it would simply say, subject to change upon reevaluation.
On the last day of my internship, the staff surprised me with a Radiolab poster that they had all signed with nice comments. And then they took some time in the editorial meeting to give me one last shot at asking for advice. I asked a general question about entering a career without having a roadmap for how it will go. And I felt gratitude wash through me as they shared a lot of great insights. The piece of advice that sticks with me the most is from Soren, senior producer of the show. He told me simply to listen and get better and better at the skill of listening. Everybody listens in an interview or even just in everyday life, in relationships. But not very many people listen that carefully. A lot of people listen just enough to grab the details or sometimes just enough to validate what they were already looking for. But, Soren said, if you listen really closely, you'll actually find the thing at the center that is so deeply in there that no one else noticed. And it's actually that thing that makes the story interesting. I am positive that Soren is right about that. And it certainly helps make the case that God was right too, that night by my bed, about the virtues of me pushing pause on the preach button and actively pressing record to all the truth around me during my internship. Whether or not I am right about God really being the author of that idea that night, I feel inadequate to say. But even if it came from somewhere inside myself, in a quiet moment of reflection, I'm so glad that I was listening. written version of this story was published under the title A Makeshift Mormon in Godless New York City on the On Being blog at onbeing.org. Find a link to the essay at mosaicpodcast.com. Thanks to Lily Percy and Trent Gillis at On Being and to professors John Benyon and Liz Knight at BYU for their help in editing the written version of this story. And a very special thanks to Andy Mills, for allowing me to use the archival recording of his tape. The episode of Radio Lab that that tape was generated for is called Blame, and it's available at radiolab.org. Our next story today comes from an interview I did last week with my friend Gina Colvin. Um, I'm Gina Colvin, and I live in Christchurch, New Zealand. I first met Gina in 2012 when she came and told a story at my show, The Porch. Give it up for Gina Colvin. On stage, she described how when you grow up Mormon outside the United States, America still looms large when you're constructing your concept of the world around you. Gina's cultural, religious, and national identity is a bit of a kaleidoscope. I just, um, I'm just excited to be in Utah, actually. You know, I'm a third-generation Kiwi Maori Mormon, and Utah is our mecca. And I tell you why, because all through my childhood, we sang the praises of Utah. And when we thought about pioneers, we didn't think about brown natives making their way across silken waves to the splosh of their canoes. 
We didn't think about our European ancestors making their way across the Pacific. We thought about bonneted pioneers with wheelbarrows. <laughs> when we had to put our identities in order, the most important thing was that we were Mormons, not Māori, not New Zealanders. It was that we were Mormons. In the years since she told that story, Gina has assumed the helm of the podcast A Thoughtful Faith, which examines Mormonism at the margins. Actually, I'm happy to say I also appear on that podcast from time to time in a series we do together called The Cheeky Mormon Movie Review. I admire Gina's mind and how she applies it, along with her heart and her deeply soulful wisdom, to her religious life. As I bring up in the conversation you're about to hear, I sometimes like to call Gina my favorite Mormon prophet. I don't like to talk about spiritual development because it suggests a hierarchy. Uh, you know, I do really enjoy Fowler's contribution to the idea of faith development and growth. I wanted to sit down with her recently because there have been some turns of late in her spiritual path, some new colors to her religious identity. And I wanted to understand those turns and how she came to the place where she now finds herself. Enjoy. Okay, I want to I wanna read a passage from, from one of these posts. Um, this is from a very recent blog post that you wrote just a, a few weeks ago or a couple weeks ago. You said, I think I've always been a God girl. I knew I loved Jesus when at seven years old I heard the story of the Good Samaritan. I remember staring intently at the sepia picture of religious leaders passing by a broken man on the side of the road. I listened, enthralled, as Sister Fi-Fi told the most amazing story of radical love. It was then that the miracle of Jesus stretched out in front of me as a wondrous and delicious mystery. I grew up as the child of a single mother and the brown child in a white neighborhood of a single mother. So I was always very, very sensitive to the margins. I never had that word, but I was always sensitive to the idea that there was a, there was a big center and there was a smaller periphery. And those on the periphery had the experience of being marginalized. And I also had the experience of people who should have known better and that was mostly at that time was school teachers. And then the experience of knowing that even adult leaders can be untrustworthy. Mm. Uh, and I knew that at age three and four when I was at kindergarten. Mm. And in New Zealand, we do kindergarten differently. We start at age three and go to five, and then we start our school at age five. Uh, and my mother, I remember going to my mother and saying, those in kindergarten, th- those teachers don't like me. And... And I don't think they like me because of the color of my skin. And people say to me, oh, you're not that dark. And I was, you know, people who are biracial tend to get a bit lighter as they go along. Hmm. So I was, I was a brown kid. Um, and she very astutely said to me, and she's white. Your mother, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She very astutely said to me, Gina, um, you need to know that people, that that experience you're having is racism. And racism is when people don't like you because of the color of your skin or the culture that you have or where you're from. And she said, and it's wrong. So I'm glad that at a very early age, she she was able to structure that for me. So it gave me eyes to see. So when I ex- had that experience of the Good Samaritan, 
I thought, wow, I remember it very, very starkly. And Sister Fi-Fi was naming the Levite priests and all of these religious leaders. She was naming each of them as they went by. And it made such sense to me. Hmm. Um, and so the story of Jesus suggested that uh, that there was a principle out there in which I was held in belovedness. And all of us on the side of the road are held with great belovedness. And Jesus was the teller of that story. Do you, in your experience of being Mormon, do, do the stories, do the stories, are the stories of a common um, entry point into Jesus? Because I, I wonder, you know, to, I wonder if if the stories um, were more prevalent in terms of how people understood Jesus. I want, don't you think Mormons would be more radical a little bit in some ways if they were paying more attention to the stories? Oh, absolutely. Oh, the stories of Jesus are remarkable. And we could get into the, the historical Jesus debate uh, and the debate about the historicity of Jesus if we like. But, you know, humans make their meaning from stories. They extract their life. They, they frame their life around stories. Uh, and I don't think we do that enough. I think we used to. I grew up with that. I grew up going to primary and uh, midweek primary and junior Sunday school, and we told stories of Jesus. That's what we did, uh, and that's what grabbed me. Mm. Uh, and I think that would be, and, and I wonder why. I was recently on the the primary presidency, and we opened the sharing time, like the handout for two thousand and whatever it was. And I'm thinking, you know, every story of Jesus here, every reference to Jesus ends with the conclusion, and therefore the church is true, and therefore such and such is a prophet of God. Right. How did we get here? I don't know how we got here. But let me tell you, Russell M. Nelson and Thomas Monson and Gordon B. Hinckling is not nearly are not nearly as compelling as Jesus. I know that they try and conflate the two, but they're utterly wrong and misdirected and misguided in that, and they need to repent of it. But anyone who tells us to look beyond Jesus to these human figures um, is, is doing our spirituality a huge disservice. Yeah. Um, I want to ask, so the phrase, I think I've always been a God girl. Um, mm. un- can you can you unpack that a little bit more? Um, I think I've always been an, a God girl because... In the way that I've always felt that there is that I'm beloved by something bigger than myself and something more than humanity can ever offer me, and in a way that is a sense there's a sense of unity with creation that I don't know, I don't think there has been a moment where I have ever doubted. I don't. I, yeah, hmm. you know I know that really kind of triggers some people, but. When I say I, I haven't doubted, I haven't doubted that there is something abroad. There is something bigger than ourselves, but in ourselves. Do you know that we're just, that we have this profound belongingness in this sort of, you know, I like to call it God's spiritual ecosystem. Mm. And that we're all part of that, we're all grown, and that we have the elements of that something divine and magnificent. The the ecosystem. Tell me, what what are the other living elements of that ecosystem as you see it? The God, how do you describe it? God's ecosystem. Yeah, it's like a spiritual ecosystem. Mm. There is something at the at the seat of our our being 
that reminds us our, of our connectivity too. Like at a, you know, almost in a cellular level, we're all related to each other. All of this is part of some, and I don't want to say grand design, but something bigger than us, which is deeply compassionate. And I, you know, I learned a couple of years ago, I, I got into transcendental meditation, mm. which, and I hadn't been praying because I mistrusted prayer for a long time. And I missed it and I needed some kind of something. So I went and trained in transcendental meditation. You know, they're very, very uh, particular <laughs> about how you do things. They're always checking and I've got a whole philosophy around it. So I thought, I'll, I'll give this a go. And so I was in the middle of transcendental meditation. They give you a mantra and the idea is that you suspend thought by vesting it in the repetition of a mantra. And that gives an opportunity for our thoughts to refine and settle down into something, into a deeper consciousness. And what hit me and like a couple of sessions in was this utter and absolute sense of my belovedness. So much so that I'm sitting there weeping. And I went back to my teacher and I said, hey, Carolyn, I just had this experience. She said, yeah, that's, that's the experience. That's the experience of God consciousness. Uh, and this, and God as being this, this um, expression of love and compassion. That's the experience. I'm like, wow, I can have it in this experience. wonder if I can have it in contemplative prayer. And sure enough, it happened that there is something deeper, something deeply connected. I recall looking out of my window and watching, we've got a plum tree out of our window, and watching the birds darting in and out. And I thought just for one split second that I didn't sense any any difference between myself and the tree and the birds or the wind that there was something interconnected between us all and just opening ourselves up to that I think that's where God is I don't know I'm not I don't believe in an anthropomorphic God I don't choose that as a belief it could be that you've got some kind of divine anthropomorphic God like kind of working this all out and assembling all this. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, but I don't fuss myself about that question. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I love that uh, description of the, the ecosystem. And it's, 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 a good, it's a good analogy, I think, because um, in science, we have things that look like design and we have, we have evolution um, – like we'll say that these these species developed these uh, traits in order that they might thrive in this situation, but it's really the the reality is the reverse of that. That um, the ones that develop those traits happen to survive, and and so I mean that's my opinion is that there's not a grand design in the sense that all of this stuff that we have in this world was created at once or you know mm. with, for one mm. purpose, but that in just the the reality of of being there is this interconnectedness to everything and and um and if we if we will listen and observe what we what is around us um there's so much beauty and power and and I'm I'm reminded of those those thoughts as you're describing that that idea mm, mm. well i think in every tradition they have it in the judeo christian tradition that very important. I think we're looking at Genesis three, where they, where Genesis two, where the gods say, "Let us make man and woman in our own image." 
And I think, you know, that is a way of reproducing that's, that that moment of creation suggests that interconnectivity to something larger than ourselves. Like in the Māori cosmology, there is this sense that and they call them potama, this idea of our deep connectedness into a cosmology that's larger than us and that, that you know, we ascend and our consciousness to a, a greater knowing. So, I mean, you look in the Buddhist tradition and all of these traditions pick up on this, this sense of moreness. And I choose the Christian tradition, not because I think it's the one true tradition, but it's just my tradition. And I think putting everything together, imagine that, if we could get into a place, it's cross-faith expression of what does it mean? What does, you know, the meaning of life Um I think we would find so many similarities, not only in our, pr- pr- our practice, but also in those core mystical cosmological uh, sensibilities. We're having the same conversation. That's an exciting notion. Yeah, that's very right for sure. Um, so the the passage that I read was from this most recent blog post, but I want to go back and uh, to some of the more early early things, part, the early part of your life, and and kind of go chronologically a little bit through. And I love how at the beginning of this conversation you talked about you kind of um, problematized the notion of a of a spiritual journey or you know this anything that would um, presuppose that where you are now is necessarily higher or or lower you know whatever Mm. than where you were before Um, and so rather than thinking about the experiences that you've had in terms of a spiritual journey or um, a a single line that has taken you um, to where you are now or of any any value judgment to it, I'm just very curious about the story, the narrative element of it. As I've as I've known you and and I've seen the the things that you've um, done and written, I'm just very excited about talking about your your uh, biography here, Gina. And um, you mentioned mm. you mentioned that you're you're writing an autobiography. Is that right? An auto ethnography. Ooh, ooh, okay. <laughs> and it's just it's just because I'm like a little embarrassed to write about myself. But if I write it, say it's an auto ethnography. There's an element <laughs> of um, an analysis there, uh-huh. which which like, appeals to my more academic sensibilities. That makes mm. me not look so tossy <laughs> and full of myself. <laughs> well, um, at the risk of of, of of making you full of yourself, I. I I have a title that I like to give to you, which is Mormonism's best prophet. So ha, ha, oh. I've never actually asked you if you're okay with me calling you that. How do you feel about me thinking of you as more my favorite Mormon prophet? Oh, I love it that you think I'm a prophet. I'm not sure about a favorite Mormon prophet. <laughs> because well, I think that we yeah, we're ahead. called to be prophets. We are called to be prophets. Yeah. Any time. We call out, and Walter Brueggemann talks about the divine, that the, the royal consciousness, this idea of empire and hubris and patriarchy, it's all what he calls a royal consciousness. And anybody who sits outside of that and points a finger at and says, that's not the way things should be as a prophet, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. I agree. That's exactly right. And I mean, we didn't go more than a, you know, a couple minutes into this conversation before you called out some specific LDS <laughs> prophets uh, to <laughs> repentance. So I can't, I can't help myself. <laughs> it fits the description to me. I mean, that. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to your um, early days. So you inherited Mormonism from your father. Is that right? I did. I did. Uh, my grandmother joined the church when she, in the 19, 1920s. And then she had an arranged marriage with my f- grandfather, 
who was somewhat older and had nine children. She was a young woman. And we call that, in Māori, we call that a tomo marriage. So they lived up on the east coast of the North Island and they got those two together and they had another 10 children. Um, so they did this whole Māori Mormon thing really beautifully. Um, so, yeah, so my father was obviously a Mormon. He was a non-practicing Mormon. Uh, met my mother, who was an Anglican, and they had me. And then my mother joined the church when she was pregnant with me, but they didn't get married. Yeah. Can you tell me about the relationship between your father and your mother and how their relationship may have impacted your life? Well, it was more of an absence because my father was already married. Um, I think he'd left his wife. They'd had three children. Uh, So he was sort of between. And my mother came along and she was 18. He was 30-something. So he wanted me to be adopted and my mother didn't. And he insisted on it, so she left him. That's her story. I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I can say that now yeah. because I, I'm not married. She's she's not alive. But um, And then, you know, she was an 18-year-old pregnant girl who just got enfolded into this little small twig of the church in Christchurch, New Zealand. And she was loved, and I was born, and I was loved in this odd little Mormon community that made space for a pregnant woman hmm. to a bastard child. Hmm. So it was just you know, in many respects, like my growing up in this and being percolated in this environment of great care and love by this odd band of Maori and non-Maori people, which is something gorgeous that Mormonism could do in New Zealand. It was very, very um, interracial and biracial, still is. Uh, you know, while there was lots of judgment about her marital status outside in the Catholic tradition, the Anglican traditions, which are the biggest churches here in New Zealand, uh, there was just welcome and belonging for all of us, for both of us in the Mormon church. Hmm. And your mother, so your mother joined the the church af- after sh- after you were born or, be- or before you were born? Oh, the week before I was born. The week before? Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. I've been baptized three times. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. We'll get to all. Let's get to all three in this. <laughs> we'll cover all three. You were baptized. Your mother was baptized while you were in her in her body. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's amazing. Um, how, how did your Maori uh, identity develop? It, it really. My mother was super supportive of that. It sounds she like, like it. super super supportive. But New Zealand is a, is a very bicultural country, and the church, as I say, was when I grew up was dominated by Maori. Uh, so what I couldn't get from my mother, I certainly got from the ward members, you know, my community, hmm. uh, you know, where funerals were conducted at the Marae, which is the Māori meeting place, and people spoke Māori. Yeah. And- wow. I, I'm, I'm fascinated that you ha- because you had a white mother who was raising you, you got Māori in, you got your Māori from, Mor- from the Mormons. Wow. That's, that's oh, kind of yeah. surprising, isn't it? That's pretty cool, right? Yeah. I want to read another passage. So this is from November. This is from your writings in November 2014, a post called Anguished Musings on Afraid Testimony. And this is what you said then. And I'm, I'm, I just wonder how, how this has maybe changed for you over the years or, or where this kind of stands now. You said, I don't need the church to be true. I just need it to be good. I don't need the church to be right. I need it to be just. I don't need it to be pure. I just need it to be honest. I don't need to hear how great the church is. I need to hear how glorious Jesus was. I don't even need to it to be liberal. 
I just need it to be kind and inclusive. I don't need the church to give me all of the answers. I simply need it to hear my questions. I don't need the church's judgment. I need its acceptance. Mm, well, that was nice. <laughs> it is nice. <laughs> I move. <laughs> me too. <laughs> so, how is it? How's that? How's that worked? How's that? How's that been? How? What's um, in the last several years since you wrote that? Um, how did the church do on the on that? What you needed it to be? Not good, Derek. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> Do you know, I, I went to church on Sunday with Nathan uh-huh. uh, and the family, and as we were pulling up, I just started getting all twitchy, and I, I started repeating this mantra, which went, I have no expectations. If you have no expectations, you won't be disappointed. Have no expectations, and you won't be disappointed. <laughs> and Nathan was laughing. And, but it was actually really good because it just – got me to be a bit calmer Mm. and I had to like sit in contemplative prayer through almost all of sacrament meeting. Yeah. Um, because it is a disappointment. Hmm. Yeah. It's dead, Derek. It's dead. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned Nathan, Nathan is your husband and is, uh, is, is Mormon is, is. uh, Yeah. Fully active. He's on the state young men's presidency. Yeah. And I guess you don't always agree with him about, church stuff but you seem to have a good relationship yeah we do you know it's been hairy at times uh-huh. we almost oh well, i almost left him uh-huh. uh because i felt really bad i felt terrible that this isn't what he signed up for and here i was um in a curmudgeon mm. <laughs> about mm. the church and every sunday we would spend the afternoon arguing about church related things so mm. it's it's it has been worse yeah. but i don't think it's ever been better yeah well, so I, I'm I'm itching to get to the kind of right now where you are in 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 your in your narrative, but I, I do want to touch on a couple other things um, before we get to that point. in In 2015, and almost just the year 2015 for my Mormon ears is like triggering because that was the the um, the year that a policy certain policy came out um, excluding gay families uh, from full Mm. participation in the church. And that happened right at the beginning of November. And here is this post from right at the end of October. I think it's interesting. This was right at the end of, right before that happened. And (laughs) Right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But (sighs) so let's just kind of go through what happened um, and then you can fill in the gaps and kind of fill out what more of the details of this, of this story. But you start out this, this, uh, this post by saying, dear Ward family, you probably have noticed I haven't been to church lately. But then kind of the kicker, I guess, of this post is that you essentially announce that you're um, going to be taking a, a sabbatical or, or that, um, you know, that maybe maybe you won't. You're going to be looking at other churches. You're going to be exploring. Um, you you mentioned I, I like this passage where you say uh, it's likely that the boys will come with me, meaning your son referring to your sons. Nathan has told them that they have a choice whether they go with me or him. I've been attending Southwest Baptist Church over the last couple of months, and they love coming with me because, as they say, we don't have to wear uniforms. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but so then then there's this very um, curious post where a few months later you kind of check in, and it, that one is called "How I Failed My Mormon Sabbatical," and and you talk about how you know what? No, I I'm I I couldn't. What did it mean to you? What did it mean to you to fail your Mormon sabbatical? What did what did what did that mean? I think there was unfinished business. Uh-huh. 
Um, and I knew there was unfinished business. I think it's, it's funny, the curious timing of that letter to my ward. Uh, I just really wanted space to go out and explore. And I think it's absolutely, if you're talking of Fowler's stages of faith, it's absolutely acceptable and even needful at that really ragey stage four stage um, of differentiation to create a space. I will say that I'm glad that that happened the week before the exclusion policy because it meant that I had already distanced myself. I was I was furious, but I thought, I'm already on a sabbatical, so it doesn't really matter. I've already, already announced that, so I felt quite kind of inoculated um, in many respects. And then there's a couple of months later, I think I wanted to... Nathan and I had unfinished business. Me and the church had unfinished business. And I thought, if however this goes, I want it to go graciously. I didn't know how that would work out, but uh, I mean, a lot of it was was coming back for Nathan. Wow, what a moment! What a moment in uh, Mormon Mormon life, right around that end of 2015, right? What were they thinking, Derek? Honestly. So, um, okay, so you say you had unfinished business, but I'm curious what I'm curious about what you were doing. Um, you would you would the language that you would use to describe it all the time was that you were cheating on Mormonism with <laughs> with different uh, churches. Tell me about yeah. the relationships that you formed during that time. Oh, um, outside of Mormonism, yeah, like with uh, with other religions uh, and with religious people outside of Mormonism. Oh, I was having just a whale of a time, actually. <laughs> uh, Southwest Baptist actually had been a community that I had been going to for about five or six years, two thousand and ten, eleven. I started drifting in there, and I, I didn't want to have any relationships with parishioners, so I would sort of just drift in and try and put my head down and avert my eyes, because I didn't want to be part of a community. I just wanted to be in corporate worship, but not part of a community. And then the uh, the pastors somehow got wind of me and took me aside and say, hey, what's the deal? And I'd sort of spilled my guts and they were just fabulous, just absolutely fabulous. They were the mentoring and the religious direction of the spiritual. They gave me the spiritual direction that I needed when the church couldn't. Is this Bishop Victoria that you're talking about? No, this is the Pastor Alan Jameson. I've had, I've done a, a podcast with him about faith development. Okay. He he w- had a postdoc with James Fowler uh, before he became a pastor. So he was amazing, fabulous. And I remember it coincided. I had all these really gorgeous experiences. So they had, I went a couple of weeks after the policy to Southwest Baptist. And the Baptist Church don't do, often do um, communion, but they were doing communion this day. And I saw Alan standing over the communion, his microphone in his hand, and he said, this table is open. Whoever you are, whatever your sexuality, whatever um, your race, your culture, ethnicity, the table is open for you because it's not for any church to stand between your relationship with God. Mm. And he said, I also need to say that my God is not homophobic. Mm. And I just burst into tears. You know, to, to hear a man of God speaking of God in a way that includes all, and at that moment, it was such a bomb. I spoke to him later about that. And I said, you can't, you can't know how important that was for me to hear that at that time. 
I said, did you get some flack for that? And he goes, yes, of course I did. <laughs> you know, people don't like it. He said, but I have to speak my truth, as you do. Um, but I don't know. I mean, there's all these serendipitous moments, these meeting of people outside of Mormonism who fed me with things that were just so powerful and necessary and absolutely what I needed at that time. I just, I, I, I mean, if I stacked them up, like, honestly, there'd be a volume, which or, tells me that God is always working. And to be a seeker, because, you know, I, I just, I haven't been left empty. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about others? Are, are there any other um, figures, characters in this, in this story that are important? Um, uh, probably Bishop Victoria. Okay, who, who is, is she? The bishop of, she's the bishop of the Christchurch Diocese of the Anglican Church. And I was invited along to a meeting. I can't remember. I was at Laidlaw College. I finished my job at the University of Canterbury and went to Laidlaw College to do a graduate diploma in theology. And there was an invitation to us to go and have a conversation if we were seeking ordination. I don't know if I'm seeking ordination, but I thought this would be fun. And so we had dinner with Bishop Victoria. And she said, you need to choose a community. And then later on, we were doing the dishes together. And she said, I, she said, okay, Gina, what sort of, what are you looking for in community? I said, that absolutely has to involve a feminist priest. I can't do any more male churches. She said, well, I've got exactly the right person for you. Um, and she said, go to this church. So the next week I went to All Souls Anglican Church and the feminist and the, the priest there is a, a woman called uh, Megan Hillsmore. And she saw me sitting in the session. She came to she came right up to me and she said, do we need to know each other? I said, I think we do. And and it just, just this kind of relationship just evolved from there. And, you know, it's been so powerful and important. I now have a spiritual director and she's a Catholic sister. So she works on that interior stuff, that contemplative stuff with me. So I'm really mentored. Like in terms of ecclesiology, I think I would, the Southwest Baptist and Alan Jameson is great in terms of corporate worship and feminism in the church. The Anglican church has been fabulous in terms of that interiority and Ignatian spirituality and contemplative work. The sisters in this um, in this uh, community uh, of Roman Catholic women has been really powerful for me. So I mean, it's just it's just a lot. Hmm. So as you as you visited these these churches. Um... And and you you always were kind of joking about that you were cheating on Mormonism, <laughs> but yeah. but Mormonism does have a very um, it's a very jealous religion you might say. Um, so did it feel weird at all to be to be? I mean, did did you feel naughty <laughs> to be visiting other churches or 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 not? Um, did I feel naughty? I, I sort of <laughs> well, I grew up going to Baptist churches and Catholic churches and Mormon churches, um, all at the same time. So it just seemed quite natural. But I knew that the LDS, you know, people at the LDS church would struggle with it. Uh, but I didn't care. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, but you know, I tell people, oh yeah, I've been to this church and I've been to that church, and I'd see their looks of alarm. Then, then, then they'd put it in the oh, that's Gina. Yeah, but you know, thing that's there's sort of like there's there's us and then there's Gina and we're just like we love her, but yeah, she's on her own thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well let's let's talk about your baptism. You were baptized as a, 
as, as a, before you were born um, it, it, when you're with your mother. Um, yes. You were then baptized when you were eight. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, any any notable any any special memories from that that second baptism? Let's call it. <laughs> I loved my baptism, and I had a nanny, someone who looked after me during the day, who is Dutch and Baptist, and very devout woman. And I we we were very close to her family, and she came along, was absolutely supportive. I loved my baptism. It turned out I was baptized by the branch president, who'd been sexually harassing my mother, um, <laughs> and confirmed by somebody who was a serial adulterer. Uh, but, you know, having said that, it was just a lovely experience to be baptized. Um, I really enjoyed it. Did it mean anything and to you as an eight-year-old? So it did, absolutely. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was on fire. I had the fires of the Spirit of God with me um, and the Spirit of the Book of Mormon because, like, the next day I went to school and in morning talk time I got up and bore my testimony, told everybody they need to be reading the Book of Mormon. Like, it, it, was, a, it was a profound spiritual experience for me. At what point did it enter your imagination for the first time that you might be open to being baptized again outside of Mormonism? Um, probably when I was at the Baptist church, cause they're always baptizing people, you know, cause it's the Baptist church. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. I really liked going to the baptism. So it made me think about baptism. Okay. So that's, that's at the Baptist church. Um, mm. but, uh, that's not where you were baptized, right? No. And I never thought that I would. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, you know, the, the Baptist churches are really, that was Southwest Baptist is such an important holding ground. I was very much a pilgrim in that place. It mm. fed me when the LDS church couldn't. It held me in a way that I wanted to be held. I didn't want to be involved. I didn't want any responsibilities. And I was told that that would be absolutely fine. But I, I kind of knew that I wouldn't ever be Baptist uh, and had always been attracted to the Anglican church because of its liturgy because it has woman's ordination and because it's very inclusive. I, I was talking to uh, my, my Māori friends, my little Māori feminist community, and they were asking me, you know, what are you thinking, you know, in terms of your religious life? And I said to them, well, I'm thinking about ordination. And my friend Mary said to me, well, it has to be in the Anglican church because they're, they're good for Māori. They've always been around Māori. Uh, and she was right. Like they're very, and she said, you know, they're great with social justice as well. You know, you need to be the Anglican church. So I think it's probably my Maori sisters who said, who kind of prompt me in that direction. But you can't do ordination without baptism and confirmation. Right. And I'd sort of gone backwards and forwards about the whole baptism thing, and we'd read the general handbook of instructions, and Nathan was thinking, For oh, yeah. Uh, Nathan was thinking, if you get baptised, then, you know, you might get excommunicated. What happens to our temple ceiling? And I, it was just it was a, a real huge go round. And I was just feeling myself edging closer and closer to that, needing a rite of passage to mark my differentiation, to mark a choice, a spiritual choice, that I, a religious choice that I was making. And then one night I went, like on March the 1st of this year, actually, uh, I went to the vicarage with a bunch of our kids who also, they do young men's, but they also go to the youth group. And I went to drop them off and I was going to be transport for the night. And I said, I don't know, out of the blue, we were going to the beach. I said, out of the blue, hey, it might be a good night to be baptized. And Megan, my priest, said, it's funny that you should say that. I felt that too. So everything's in the car ready to go. <laughs> So <laughs> I'm like, okay, I guess this is happening. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so then, like, after the youth group left, all dissipated, a few of us stood on the beach. I hadn't told Nathan at that point, which is, you know, n- naughty me, but I didn't really want him, his Mormon judgment contaminating the experience. Paint a picture of the scene. What did it look like? What did it, so you're on the beach. What is it? What is the beach? It's like? it's <laughs> it's dusk on the beach. It's on, on Brighton Beach. Um, it's it's warm, but not too hot. Not too co- not too hot. It's um, and we we just sort of gathered in a little circle. And first of all, you are anointed using the rites of baptism from the, 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 the Book of Common Prayer, which is really to say that, and, and it asks you various clarifying questions. Do you, and I can't think of them off the bat, but do you, is it your wish to follow Jesus? Is it your wish um, to enter this baptism as a sign of that desire for you to be a disciple of Jesus? And, you know, as I affirmed those, then she blessed me um, with water, with the cross, um, on my forehead and and I must say that it was a period of Lent and I was taking Lent very seriously so I was thinking about what's dying in me what's giving rebirth you know giving space for new rebirth it's a very intense spiritual period of six weeks uh, so this is right in the, in the middle of it all um, and then she and um, Bridie who was having a baptism of reaffirmation we walked into the ocean. She wears a cassock. I'm just in my togs. Oh, in my bathing suit. Um, and we walk into the ocean and then turn our backs to the surf. And then she said, in the name of the Mother and the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost, I baptize you. And, you know, it's full immersion and then up again. And this, the moon was, like, shining down on us. And it was just, it was just perfect, you know. Two women, there were three of us, Two women, one woman either side of me, I was baptised and um, we come back into the, and all of the people left on the, on the, on the beach watching were men. So, <laughs> and I just thought that was just so perfect. Bearing witness. Bearing witness to women doing this work. Yeah, it was just, it was, I mean, you know, you couldn't have asked for a more perfect occasion. And there's a photograph on that blog post of us bathed in this full moon, the light of this full moon coming out of the water. That's yeah, pretty special. It felt right, but at the same time it felt, wow, just the things have moved, like this is big. But it felt like a relief. Uh, when she announced I was the, the world's newest Christian, I loved that I was called a Christian. Hmm. Because it's, you know, to be called a Christian and a Mormon is, uh, you know, there's always that diciness. <laughs> like, really, are they Christian? And even I don't know that. Uh, not in the, in, the, in the biggest sense of the word. Mm. So, so where does this leave you? <laughs> where, what, what is, what is, what are the, uh, help me unpack or help me put together the pieces of your um, religious identity, Gina. <laughs> good question because as is normal (laughs) this becomes a question of discipline well not normal as is typical (laughs) it becomes a question of discipline um and i've was summoned to a meeting with my bishop you were uh when oh yeah how how long did that take to happen 
Oh, I think we met with him on Friday. So why did that? Why did that come about? Did somebody tattle on you, or did somebody read your blog? Or yeah. Oh no, no, because I wrote that blog after I'd been summoned to the meeting. I thought, okay, I need to have the final word mm. on this. I need, I need to kind of blow because I hadn't been too sort of public about it because it was a very private and sacred experience. But I thought, and I know that you know the local Mormons read my blog, and I wanted to explain. So you were you you were brought in and you had a meeting with with who exactly? Uh, well, the bishop asked for a meeting. Okay, so how did that? What happened? Do you know what's really lovely? Actually, it could have been worse. <laughs> well, he was just curious to know how what brought me to that and what does that mean in terms of my relationship with the church? And I said, like you're Maori, like what if somebody told you you had to choose whether or not you're Maori or Pakia? You, you know, he's half and half or half a bit of this and a bit of that. I said, what if somebody said to you, you had to choose one of those identities to live in for the rest of your life? I said, it's a nonsense, isn't it? You know, I've lived with two things. I've lived with being Māori and Pākehā. I've lived as being a woman in a man's world. I've been, you know, I'm the mother of adopted, fostered and um, biological children. So, like, what if people said you could only have, choose one of that lot of children? as your favourites, choose one identity. I said, you know, the reality is the Mormon church couldn't hold me. I wanted more. I wanted safety. I wanted stability. The LDS church, no matter all of these years that I've tried to establish that sure footing, I've not been able to do it. And, you know, being a Mormon means that you have to be open to the possibility that someone is going to sucker punch you, whether it's a conference or by some policy, and you'll never have any control over that. I said, I don't want that. I don't want to live my my religious and spiritual life like that. But I don't want to not be Mormon because how can I not be Mormon? It's like saying, don't be Maori. So I said, you know, I don't know. I just, I think that when we take paradoxes and we look at, we let those paradoxes live, that somehow something beautiful comes out of it. So that's how we left it. But I think there's more meetings to come. Do you, do you, do you have a sense of, of anything that's going to happen? No, I, I think they want to avoid discipline, but they might feel that they need to. I don't know. I mean, it's just a silly way of marking. It's a silly and spiritually immature way of marking somebody's spiritual growth. Mm. Like, you know, it's not my fault. You, know, you could have been better. I would have stayed if you'd been better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why are you disciplining yeah. me? Discipline yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that brings me this, this, this passage of this most recent blog post, actually, where you describe your baptism. You say, so let me be clear. No one asks nor welcomes a faith crisis. And the pain of it all is perplexing enough without it being compounded by the disappointment and discipline of others. To treat faith crisis as a sin is cruel. I tried for years to see my way through this impasse, furiously sharing my disappointment, arguing for better, trying to describe the outrage, studying church history, listening to too many podcasts, writing, speaking, and agitating for change, not because I hated the church, but because I loved it. But while all of this aggressive activity is cathartic in some ways, the soul eventually gets taxed. Over time, I began to feel an aching need for stillness and a desire to be somewhere where my feet aren't struggling to find stable ground. Mm. That's true. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm this this phrase um, to to treat faith crisis as a sin is cruel. Yes, I mean the the idea that you would be disciplined for being baptism for being baptized um, elsewhere. 
I worry about that. Here's me kind of speaking as a friend, Gina, <laughs> not as an interviewer, mm. but I worry that going through a process of discipline over, over something that had been, um, as you say, an intentional marking of differentiation. I just, that sounds, that sounds awful. That sounds, that sounds, and it's, I mean, there's obviously certain aspects that are not in your control, uh, unfortunately mm. about that, but I worry about that sullying the experience in a way that, that that here you're being that you might be punished for something that was in was intended to be a healing moment in your life. That you know, it's I'm glad that you're really sensitive to that, and I appreciate that. Uh, and I think um, that's that's the ground that I walk on, like as a Mormon, uh, exploring and deepening my spiritual practice and my life and my discipleship while trying to hold on to this Mormon identity or feeling the need to hold on to that Mormon identity, I know that this is uncharted territory. Um, And I know that the reflex of Mormons, (laughs) of the institutional church, is to take difference and discipline it. But I can't... I accept that. I accept that one day I might end up in a church court. Um, I hope I will do that with calm and grace. Um, And it would be hugely disappointing. But if that's the way it is, then it's more about the LDS church than it is about me. I I can't repent of something that, you know, God led me to. Like, how can you do that? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I know the the, the way that the, the LDS Church works. I, I'm not 100% sure that that's what will happen. Mm-hmm. I think if it was up to our local leaders, they would just leave me to it. Um, but if some big wig from America starts sniffing at this, uh, you know, I mean, the, the chaps around here are priesthood broken after bend over and, you know. Yeah, pre- do as they're Priesthood told. Priesthood broke, meaning so, willing to do what they're told from from. from the, yeah, yeah, yeah. But having said that, I, I do feel that you know, they're being really good advocates. My local leaders, I couldn't, you couldn't get better, yeah. really. I, I, I just, I, I'm conscious of the fact that I push their buttons, but I'm not sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think they entirely dislike it. I think they like to be pushed. Yeah. Uh, and they expect to be pushed. You know, I mean, both of them are Māori, so they know how Māori women work uh-huh. too. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I guess to, to ask uh, a, a cl- probably too simplistic of a question, but you're you're still Mormon, right? I mean, yes. yes. So, um, and what, what do you think that will look like going forward? I don't know. I really don't know. I've got no imagination for it. <laughs> I've just got, I'm just letting it happen. Like, you know, if if I get to a couple of months down the track and something else opens in me and says, you need to resign now, then I'll just live into that because I'll know that there'll be calm and peace associated with it. And that's the, the amazing thing about it, that every step of the way, you know, there might be thorny ground, but it feels peaceful and it feels right and intuitive. And I just think that that's the way that God works. Like, you know, it doesn't kind of lubricate the slide. You know, sometimes the slide down is a little bit bumpy and your ass gets stuck. Um, but you know, there's nowhere else uh, uh, way way to go but down. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Okay, well, I'm I'm excited to find out, Gina. 
<laughs> Me too. <laughs> because whatever it is, where, where, wherever wherever your journey takes you, wherever wherever it happens, I I'm, I know there will be lots of light that seems to follow you wherever you go. Oh, it's very kind. Is there anything else that we missed? I mean, is there anything in your heart right now that, from what, what we've talked about, that you'd that you'd like to throw in? Oh, I wanted just to say to people who are in faith crisis, I think this is a faith crisis is a thing from God. Uh, and you know, if you don't like the word God, that's fine. Something from the heavens, or if you don't like heavens, the divine, <laughs> something from the more. Like it is so intuitive mm. to reach a point in your life where you think, I can't live into these stories anymore. Be kind with yourself and those around you. Um, that's all I've, I've got to say. I just, I don't like, I actually hate the word faith crisis, the, the term faith crisis. I think it's just an impasse. Uh, and the being still in that impasse and curious and questioning and finding people who can support you is utterly important. Don't treat it like you've done anything wrong because you haven't yeah well well gina colvin it has been a great pleasure to talk to you thank you for joining me in this conversation and i sincerely wish you just the very best in 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 your in your ongoing spiritual life thank you so much derek same Finally, we end today's show with a new song by Officer Jenny, a.k.a. Stephen Cope. I wanted to talk to Stephen about her new song and to discuss some of the ways it touches on this theme of complex, evolving identity. I caught up with her over the phone when she was at the airport, just about to board a plane to Cambodia. Okay, so Stephen, hello. Hey, whoa, hey. I haven't ever talked to you before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're not we're not just re-recording anything right now uh, with, yeah. with a new mic setup. I'll play her new song in full called All Remain Stable, and then we'll talk to her some more.
You're, you're such a great um, writer of lyrics, Stephen. I and and so, I mean, some of these lines are definitely things I've never heard before. Like you say, "I am a nebula, celestial carcass in the void, but I am present <laughs> at least for now." I mean, that <laughs> that's really good. Like when you're writing lyrics, does it um, does it feel like it's just, the words just kind of come from a a place in your gut as opposed to like <laughs> your brain? I mean, it, that's a good question. Yeah, I think it's a combination of the two, right? Okay. Um, I, I think there are, like, we're definitely conscious, like, parallelisms and, um, like, singing about un- unbecoming in the last three phrases. Um, mm. You mentioned um, the word unbecoming, which, yeah, as you, as you said, is, is a few different times you, you use that word. And I want to throw this out at you um, as we're talking. This is coming to mind that... Um, you know, because that, that that word can mean something like unappealing or some synonym like that. Yeah, but absolutely. But I, there's also I, it's it's occurring to me now as you're talking that there's also an element that you could maybe talk about identity in that word that you know becoming something and then unbecoming so, right. something else. I don't is do you think that plays it into it at all? Absolutely. Yeah, that is a that is a pun. I think uh, I don't think that I necessarily. Well, actually, when I wrote it, I think I was aware of the actually the unappealing meaning of it Uh i i I knew that is how that word is commonly used but i actually um i think probably what was in my mind was uh yes i am unbecoming i am unappealing but also uh, i am destructing a little right Mm. um which is uh there's actually a video game there's a video game I love called Loom mm. by uh, it's a LucasArts point and click game, which I know I always talk about, <laughs> but um, so you're this little character and you go around and you, you're, you're a, a weaver 
in, in the end, you have to like unweave the loom. Uh, and uh, I think that's kind of the image I had in my mind when I was writing this lyrics was this image of this like uh, loom, this loom becoming unwoven and the space uh, in which the space it occupied, it just leaves this gaping hole in like the universe where these swans, mm. where then all these weavers turn into swans and fly out into space, <laughs> which is an awesome wow. image. Uh, yeah, so I thought of this like unmaking moment, right? And uh, that's kind of the image I had in my mind. I don't know. Wow. Stephen, one thing I love about you is that you're you're seriously one of the most profound like thinkers um, that I know. You're one of the most intelligent people <laughs> I know, and just and but I love how I love how freely you like reference these obscure video games that are that are <laughs> that are awesome and kind of the combination. You should play that game. It's so fun. I'm gonna ch- I'm gonna find this game. I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out. Where can people find more of your stuff? Wait, plug. Why don't you plug some stuff you're working yeah. on? Yeah, I, probably my Bandcamp page or my website, officerjenny.com or officerjenny.bandcamp.com, unless I change it. <laughs> okay, cool. Steven, thank you. In, uh, yeah. What, what, how, many, how many hours of, of plane do you have ahead of you right now? Whew, I think I have like 25 hours of travel. <laughs> awesome. Well, I wish so you the wish best with your travels. Yeah, thanks. Stephen and I talked more about her song, and she shared some more of her thoughts in an extended version of our conversation, which will be available later this week to subscribers of the Mosaic Patreon page. Check out mosaicpodcast.com support to learn about how you can become a Patreon member, as well as other ways you can show your support for this ambitious new show. Another extended bonus material that will be available this week to Patreon subscribers is a much longer version of my conversation with Gina Colvin. We talked for about two hours, and there's so much great stuff that had to be taken out for the version you heard today. So if you become a subscriber, you'll have access to the whole thing. Patreon subscribers will also be able to hear Gina's full story that she told on the porch in 2012. In addition to becoming a subscriber on Patreon, Another great and free way you can support Mosaic is by sharing this episode with friends. You can get in touch on Twitter at Mosaic Podcasts and tell me how you think it's going so far. Mosaic is written and produced by me, Derek Clements. Visit mosaicpodcast.com. Thanks to our guests today, Gina Colvin and Stephen Cope. Katie Kyle is a special advisor for Mosaic. More stories coming next week. See you then.